Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, and welcome to Westminster's Thursday noon Town Hall Forum. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forums and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation located on Nicollet Mall at 12th Street. Today's program marks the completion of our third season of presenting six forums a year between September and April here in the main sanctuary of this church. The series will resume next September, and we hope that you will be back with us. As in the past, we will persist in probing key issues from an ethical perspective, and we will continue to invite voices of conscience to this podium to address these issues. People who bring intelligence and experience, passion and compassion to the issues at hand. You'll be interested to know, I think, that next season's speakers will include Robert White, former United States Ambassador to El Salvador, Elie Wiesel, survivor of the Holocaust, who, by his writing and appearing, uh, keeps that painful memory alive, and Beverly Sills, uh, currently General Director of the New York City Opera. Next season's programs will be, as in the past, free and open to the public. We want our radio audience to be fully aware of that fact. We'd like you to come and be here in person. We will continue to count on Minnesota Public Radio and American Public Radio for encouragement, which has always been there, and for local and national coverage of these events. Our speaker today is Pavel Litvinov, whose appearance is co-sponsored by the James Ford Bell Foundation. Pavel Litvinov is a Russian by birth, a physicist by training, and above all, a man of conscience. His activity as a dissident in the Soviet Union earned him exile in Siberia from 1968 to 72 and resulted in his forced departure from the country in 1974. Some of the people in today's audience, and I among them, are old enough to remember when Maxim Litvinov was Russia's foreign minister under Joseph Stalin. Well, Pavel Litvinov, our speaker, is Maxim Litvinov's grandson, which I think adds poignancy to his story. Mr. Litvinov now lives in the United States. He resides with his family in Terrytown, New York, where he teaches physics and mathematics at the Hackley School. Mr. Litvinov is a strong, persistent voice for the honoring of civil rights in the Soviet Union. In that role, among other things, he edits with a colleague a bi-monthly magazine published in Manhattan entitled A Chronicle of Human Rights in the USSR. It details the latest arrests, imprisonments, and harassments in the USSR. It includes manifestos, open letters, and appeals for amnesty from persecuted Soviet dissidents. Well, we begin to get some sense of the man and of his mission. The time has come to let him tell his own story under the heading, The Human Rights Movement in the Soviet Union. Mr. Litvinov, we welcome you here today. Thank you, uh, thank you very much for those kind of words, uh, Mr. Meisel, and thank you for your warm welcome. It's not very frequently I speak with such large audience. And uh, uh, I have very uh, little time to answer all possible uh, questions which you might have, 
about the Soviet Union, and I will have to speak very briefly, and certain things I will not be able to, to elaborate, but I will be happy to answer questions if there will be uh, covering uh, all these questions. But first thing comes first, and first what I want to say, what is really a difference between the society like the Soviet Union, or for that matter China or Cuba or any country which call itself a socialist country, and the countries like United States or Sweden or Great Britain, uh, so-called Western uh, country, parts of the free world. What is the real difference? Because uh, the difference is quite uh, modeled, quite complicated, and many people have their own opinions. And both sides of American political spectrum are guilty in distorting the truth of these differences. American uh, left very frequently were not ready to criticize the Soviet Union because they thought that they, uh, criticizing the Soviet Union, they become united with American right and are against ideals of progress and socialism and whatever their ideals were. American right uh, always wanted to give a message that whatever uh, is in the Soviet Union, of course, everything bad in, about the Soviet Union is true, and it is true because the Soviet Union uh, has socialism, and whatever socialist reforms will be done in the United States, they necessarily will bring uh, about the same regime like the Soviet Union. I will tell you that both are wrong. But where is really the Soviet Union? What it is, it is really all about? I will try, uh, try to answer several important questions which were not asked, but in my opinion, in my experience of traveling in the United States and speaking with different audiences, are typical misconceptions. For, first of all, the Soviet Union is a country which you traditionally call uh, uh, those people Russians or Soviets. And you have to understand that, of course, most of those people are not necessarily Russians, because Russians is only one largest uh, ethnic group of the Soviet society, but not ma majority of population. The population of the Soviet Union speaks uh, hundreds of different languages, and if you will ask Ukrainian or, um, or Lithuanian if he is a Russian, he definitely will be quite upset and, and even insulted by that idea, because those people have their strong national pride and don't identify themselves with, with Russians. Uh, you can then say that maybe those people who live in the Soviet Union are the Soviets. But of course, when you uh, say the word Soviets, you mean those um, uh, population who support necessarily the Soviet regime. The Soviet population is not asked if they support or not that regime. They live under that regime, and they have to be there. But of course, Soviets at least doesn't underline ethnic uh, difference and maybe in that way is better. But for many people in the Soviet Union, if you call them Soviet, they would feel that they are not necessarily Soviet, although they won't necessarily subscribe to the word anti-Soviet. Uh, so it's very difficult and very important to define all these things. Then maybe those people in the Soviet Union, maybe they're all communists. But again, who are communists? Only 7% uh, of the Soviet population, 17 million from 250, approximately millions, uh, are are members of Soviet Communist Party. And most of even those members of Communist Party don't have any special privileges from this membership. They, at some time or other, enrolled in the party and know very well that they better stay with the party. They have to, uh, to pay party dues. They have to attend uh, party meetings, about which the most important thing is that they are very boring. But other than that, they are not different from most of the Soviet population. Just a small part of that party is one special group which you can call communists, whatever this word means. We'll return to that group, but I want to say who are those people, what this country is all about. Maybe this country is exactly a country which follows so-called Marxism, and maybe all those people Marxists, because they follow a certain doctrine which was developed by Marx in 19th century. Again, there is a trouble, because there were so many different Marxists and Marxists, even uh, the, today Marxists find the difference between young Marx and old Marx, and they found that young Marx is much kind of milder and nicer person than the old one, um, uh, and found in, in him some, uh, uh, some different features. But uh, then there were many other Marxists. There was Marxism of, in Russia, if you'll take Plekhanov and Lenin, and Stalin, and Khrushchev, and now Brezhnev, probably Andropov will invent uh, his own uh, type of, of Marxism. 
Marxism, but nobody knows which is right. And I even didn't mention Marxism of Tito or Mao Zedong or uh, Castro. They all are Marxists and all criticize all others and say that they are not real Marxists, but we are true Marxist-Leninists. So I am not Marxist myself, but I want to be fair to Marxism. In fact, uh, it is very difficult to find many traces of exactly what Marx dreamed about in the Soviet uh, state. If you want to say who are Marxists in the Soviet Union, uh, you will find a lot of people who will automatically say that they are Marxists, uh, but most people are in the Soviet Union paid for being Marxists there. You won't find many Marxists in the Soviet Union who are into Marxism of their own choice. You will find more Marxists in this country. In any university, you will find uh, people who study Marxism and discuss that. In fact, there are plenty of Marxists uh, in the Soviet Union, but either they are paid for it, or if they seriously discuss Marx, they uh, really end up in political labor camp or in mental hospital. So again, uh, there is a problem, uh, problem with, uh, with definitions uh, continuous. Then maybe this um, Soviet Union is a socialist country, as different from the United States, which is a capitalist country. Uh, I'm not a socialist and I'm quite skeptical uh, all, uh, about if you will ask me personally, but I want to be fair uh, to socialism. Socialism, uh, at least uh, there was an old dream of uh, people uh, about fairness and justice. And, f and traces of this dream you can find in, uh, uh, in Christianity, in, mo in uh, religious doctrines, in uh, teachings of so-called um, uh, socialist, uh, utopian socialist of uh, in Middle Ages and in modern times. And the dream of fairness and justice, you can find traces of that in, uh, in the words of, of Jesus Christ or, or many, uh, in many other re religions. Uh, of course, it depends on definition, but definitely this dream will never die because it's natural for people to think about improving the life and com be uh, compassionate to those who are poor, who are disadvantaged. It's a natural thing. And uh, this type of socialism is one thing, but the reality of the countries which call themselves socialist, I mean like Soviet Union or China or Cuba, is completely another thing. And those two socialisms have uh, practically no intersection with each other. They are two different things. And if you will uh, then say, okay, which country really have more socialist um, features, uh, justice, you will find many things. I don't have time to go and elaborate on all these details, but I will just mention one thing about uh, socialist justice reforms, which happened in the United States during the last uh, 40, 50 years. I, uh, uh, among them, I can mention such a thing like uh, unemployment compensation. Of course, everybody knows uh, how to how bad it, it is to be unemployed. Uh, my wife was unemployed for, for a year and uh, even uh, uh, we survived, but I will tell you, and I don't have to tell you that how much strain it put on our family and on, on her feeling about, uh, about herself. But I want to say one thing, that in this country there exists such a simple thing like unemployment compensation, which is a result of certain social progress in this country. In the Soviet Union, nobody even knows that such thing exists. This unemployment compensation. If a person lost their job because of any reason, in the best case, when they are laid off, they will get two weeks pay, and that is it. Then they are responsible for finding their own job. And I will tell you that in this country, which doesn't call itself socialist, there are much more, uh, at least people, communities, and governments uh, on all levels try to help uh, people to find jobs much more than it is done in the Soviet Union. It's just take one of these uh, points of a claim for social justice. Uh, in the Soviet Union. And of course, if you will take some countries like Sweden or Great Britain, in countries where socialist governments were for long in power, you definitely will find many, much more socialism than in those countries. So again, the, word, the failure of this definition again escapes us. What is the real difference then between the Soviet Union and United States? Maybe it's still 
somewhere in those Marxist uh, definitions about capitalism, working class exploitation, and all all those uh, all, all all those things. Maybe the Soviet Union still uh, is a kind of state where there is a government ownership which guarantees everybody at least uh, to some degree uh, uh, some kind of social justice. And the United States is a pure capitalism which uh, uh, with all its features. It also is not true. If you will look at people's attitude, you will find out that uh, it's definitely what I uh, hear about Minnesota and Minneapolis. There are much more such things like voluntarism and community service, ideas existing in this country. There is much more consumerism and, uh, and uh, ideas that to consume is the most important thing among, uh, among Soviet people. Then, what is the Soviet Union in, uh, if we'll still stick to those Marxist definitions? I probably will tell you that it's probably still capitalism, but capitalism without its main virtue, without competition. Capitalism is where a small group of that part of a communist party, which is in Russia sometimes loosely called nomenklatura. It's a group of closely knit people who officially are top of par communist party leadership, central committee, politburo, top of military, Soviet security police, KGB. All these groups together create this type of thing which uh, uh, George Orwell in his book 1984 called inner party. That inner circle unofficially is a capitalist uh, domina dominating force in the Soviet Union. And this capitalism uh, is different, uh, different from American capitalism because those people care only about their one thing about their own power, and that's where uh, what uh, what it is. So it's basically capitalism is competition. But I don't like Marxism, and I don't like Marxist definition. If you really want to know what's the difference between Soviet Union and United States, you just have to turn on uh, in the evening your television news and hear the news. I don't have to tell you what you will hear in local news and in uh, in foreign news. All news will be in most cases bad. Sometimes they will be good. Okay. Occasionally, they will say that Dow Industrial goes up and unemployment uh, probably will go down, uh, but not yet. Uh, then you will know how bad it is in the Middle East, uh, how uh, was attacked uh, the embassy, uh, how bad families for unemployment, and these awful crimes about which I hear in New York, and probably to some degree they exist here, maybe less than in New York, but still are there. I even maybe won't like to hear all these bad news all the time, uh, but I cannot escape in this country. If I don't watch TV, I will get them from newspapers, from people talking. They are there, and they indicate to real problems of this country where I live and you live, uh, that this uh, country has real serious problems. And this problem has to be solved. We have to think about that. We might not know how to solve them. We, we might be uh, disagree on their solutions, but at least we have that minimum to know what's going on. Nobody can say that we don't know uh, that at least this precondition for future maybe possible solution, if solution is available at all, is there. If you will turn on the television set in the Soviet Union, you will find out uh, that, uh, of course, this experiment has to be thought experiment, and you have to trust me. I will tell you what will be in the news tonight with very small variations. Uh, first of all, I will learn about a lot of good news that a uh, um, uh, factory by name of uh, October Revolution uh, uh, fulf fulfilled and overperformed its five year plan and produced uh, uh, much more uh, turbine for electric power stations and so on and so on. Uh, they won't mention all these details, how many, uh, what is the uh, salary of, of a worker on that, on that factory, what is his living condition, and what is medical care uh, he, he gets. It is all assumed to be good, and it is, not, uh, it is not discussed. The next item of the news will be that collective farm, by name of Lenin, um, uh, uh, produced, grew uh, so much wheat, uh, so many tons, which is the world record of... Uh, 
of, of the harvest and so on. And of course, from those news, there will be not mentioned that Soviet Union uh, regularly buys uh, millions and millions of tons of wheat from the United States that will be not in the news. Then they will tell you about electric power station, which was built somewhere in Siberia, which will produce so many billions of megawatts of, uh, of power, but they won't mention uh, about environmental impact of, of this station, how much uh, land, uh, how much soil uh, disappear, how much wildlife was uh, affected by that. They won't tell you that there is no consumers for this electricity, because the grandiosity of that project was so big that everybody was impressed that they forgot to, to build factories and to settle their people who will consume that electricity. <laughs> Uh, and it will go on and on. Uh, then there will be, of course, bad news uh, about crime and about bad things. But by interesting uh, fact, the, the crime will be not about uh, in crime in Moscow, but crime is still in New York City. Uh, uh, the crime in Moscow will stand reported. Uh, very rarely there will be something, but definitely not on TV. I think this is enough. There is nothing more I have to comment if you want to know the difference. There is nothing else. You just have to find the explanation for this fact. And the explanation is very simple, and it doesn't involve any complicated sociological uh, picture and analysis of the society. The Soviet Union is a society with complete control of everything, of means of production. But first of all, in 20th century, most important thing is complete control of information. And that information, all TV station, all radio, um, any um, uh, newspaper, everything is controlled from one center. And this is the most important feature of the Soviet life. And of course, it's all together uh, uh, supported by the same, we can say, general corporate interests of that corporate society, which is called the Soviet Union, where, which is one large corporation with very uh, small contradictions relatively between those groups which control, uh, control this, this corporation. How does this thing work? It works through very elaborate and absolutely secret system of censorship. All Soviet press uh, goes, uh, all publishing houses, everything goes uh, to censors before it will be published. And there are guidelines, there are instructions. And most important of these guidelines, that the fact of these instructions, the fact of these guidelines is absolutely secret. There is no official uh, censorship. The word censorship cannot be used if, uh, according to the Soviet censorship, applied to the Soviet Union. It can be used only applied to United States, to Tsarist Russia, or to Nazi Germany. But it cannot be used. It creates that special climate where everybody knows about the existence of censorship, but officially nobody tells you. And it explains the whole thing, the, uh, the attitude toward foreigners, toward foreign correspondents, the attempt to hide all facts of life, everything uh, in the Soviet Union. And of course, this is all reinforced by tremendous apparatus of security police, which controls all, uh, all this dissemination of information. Such things you take for granted, like uh, copies like Xerox and any others, uh, for which you can go and make copies of any leaflet and print anything, and nobody would ask you, uh, except that you cannot force people to read what you, you did. Everything else you, can, you get here for granted, just uh, you will pay the money and you will get a copy of your manuscript, whatever you wrote. In the Soviet Union, all these, um, these machines, up, up to simple photocopiers, are controlled by the government. And those people who work on them, you cannot just put a coin in a slot machine and it will start uh, making those copies. No, there will be a person sitting there manning this machine and who will always have to report if you uh, ask him to do uh, copies of something uh, of something which government doesn't consider kosher. Um, so uh, that, is, uh, that is the structure of the Soviet state. And of course, it was reinforced by arresting during the whole Soviet regime and killing of millions and millions of people. Under Stalin, these were millions. Today, it is thousands. But they kill and arrest and put in mental hospitals as many people as needed to keep country from discussing their own problems, to, from knowing about the world, from knowing about their own country. In, after death of Stalin, 
appeared uh, some turmoil in this country. I don't have time to, uh, to talk about uh, the details of this uh, turmoil, but I want, um, I want to say one important thing, that life became relatively better after the death of Stalin, and because of the fights uh, uh, on, on the top, top levels of the Soviet hierarchy, people started some discussion. And during that discussion appeared a tremendous important phenomenon, which is called Sam is that. Sam is that came as a word, as a joke, uh, which means myself publication, myself publishing house. After I said, you know that there couldn't be any myself publishing house. All publishing houses in the Soviet Union are governmental. Uh, they all call debt is that, children publishing house, polit is that, political publishing house. What is that? Then some is that. Some is that is typewriter. I own a typewriter and fortunately I, today uh, it's different from 40 years ago I can buy typewriter. Sometimes I have to wait in line for a couple of years until I will get one, but I can buy it. And then I can put a carbon paper between pages and, and uh, if I wrote a novel and my novel couldn't get through censorship then I can give a copy of this novel because I made several copies uh, to my friends and my friends will start to spread these copies between, uh, between uh, their friends. And it goes like in that, uh, in that commercial, you know, about some perfume. Uh, it goes from friend to friend, uh, uh, some, some information. And this phenomenon uh, became very important in 1960s and later in the Soviet Union. Uh, writers uh, it suddenly found their audience. Of course, it's all not done for the money, and of course, it, uh, uh, readership doesn't reach maybe more than 10, 20, 30,000 people, in most cases, is less. But what is in those books? Maybe you think it's, uh, it's those books and leaflets about undermining the Soviet regime. No, it's not true. Most of these things are discussing the real problems of their country, knowing information about uh, great um, Russian writers or military leaders who were killed by Stalin, knowing names who, which were forbidden in official Soviet censorship. Um, we just became non-persons, like a name of Russian poet Osip Mandelstam, who was killed for his poetry in 1938, and uh, whose poetry by miracle of his wife who remembered most of his poetry and started to feed it into this samis.network um, became known. That uh, became and appeared literature discussing real problems of life, discussing labor camps, but not only labor camps, not only mental hospitals, but discussing most problems like love and life and sex and death, all these things which cannot be officially discussed except in a very narrow official way. Um, uh, uh, like all Soviet population is considered by those official Soviet censors, this Central Committee uh, and uh, KGB censors who give us die. They consider all Soviet population uh, children whom, who can be permitted to watch uh, three kisses in a movie in, in 1950, five kisses in 1960, and maybe 10 today. Um, it's just an example. Uh, of course, it's much broader than that because people uh, are born and it is recognized officially in the Soviet Union by Soviet constitution, by Soviet adherence, uh, uh, lip service support to international um, uh, covenants for human rights, for human rights declarations that people are born to find out, to know. People have a right to read books which they want, uh, to see uh, films, and the government cannot impose on them, uh, on them those principles. Whatever these books are about uh, po politics, about uh, diseases, and uh, of course, there are, I mentioned diseases, and this is not uh, by accident. I mean, the Soviet government, for example, considered that all uh, life uh, Soviet people have to be uh, optimistic. And of course, because of that, they don't talk about diseases much, especially those which are uncurable, like cancer. All these things are very important. And of course, you can say they are very human. Such things can happen in any place. But it, uh, in America, there exists first 
uh, uh, first amendment uh, to the constitution which doesn't permit government uh, federal government to do these things and it creates different climates although there are appear some moments when uh, some books are forbidden by the, the certain school committee but it's still on local level and it creates a most important difference anyway after this, some is not started to circulate. KGB, Soviet security police decided to, uh, that too much information goes, too little control they have, and they started to arrest people for, uh, for this some is that. In the beginning, they arrested several writers. Then they started to arrest different groups. Most of them at that time in the middle 60s were uh, these small people, uh, groups of people who studied mostly Marxism because they didn't know at the time any other philosophy. So it was like in 100 years before in Russia, uh, the uh, political police ar arrested uh, Marxist Caucasus participants. Um, and uh, all uh, those arrests, uh, Soviet Union government hoped that in the same time it won't alienate United States. It won't alienate the world, the Western world from which they needed a lot and need a lot of things, very simple things, brain and grain to say the short. Um, uh, and in the same time we'll put down uh, all Soviet people, they will remember. Okay, they started these arrests, probably they want to return to Stalinist terror, and now these arrests uh, won't be maybe necessarily in a, in a big scale, we'll, uh, we'll just force people to keep silent again. It fortunately didn't work, and appeared human rights movement in the, in the, in the Soviet Union due to this, um, uh, uh, to this phenomenon, and also the Western groups, American groups and other in Western Europe, groups like Amnesty International, different church groups, uh, uh, groups, uh, organizations, uh, labor unions started to support Soviet dissidents. The government continued the arrest uh, of people from different religious groups, from different, uh, uh, different writers who, who spoke their minds, uh, and, uh, uh, but new people started to come. Uh, I, I will tell several words about me. I organized in 1968 a small peaceful demonstration against Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. For that, I was uh, beaten, uh, brought to police, and eventually tried and sent to five years in Siberia, um, uh, for, from which I, uh, I'm, uh, I was fortunate to return, and eventually I was forced to emigrate from the Soviet Union. But there are much smaller offenses for which people can be arrested. I definitely already spoke longer. Uh, that was my commitment, but it, it is very difficult to keep. So you will, I will stop on here and half word, and we'll be glad to answer uh, your questions. Thank you. pause for a moment and permit those who must leave at this time to do so. And while that's happening, bear in mind that you may fill out your questions and pass them to the aisle. Let me, you may be seated, uh, Mr. Litvinov, and we'll be with you in a moment. Let me simply remind our radio audience, for any who tuned in late, that uh, you are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Our speaker today is Pavel Litvinov, Russian by birth, a physicist by training, a man of conscience and exile from the Soviet Union, committed to keeping the issue of human and civil rights alive there. His appearance today is being co-sponsored by the James Ford Bell Foundation, including the costs associated with the relay of the program over the American public radio system. I'm Donald Meisel, moderator of these forums and senior minister of this congregation. If you wish to order tapes of today's presentation or any of the other forums, if you wish to correspond with us about today's forum or any of the others, please write as follows to the Westminster Presbyterian Church, Box 3562, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Zip 55403. That box again, 3562 and zip 55403. This is the last of our current series of forums, 
and we will resume again in September, and next year's series will include speakers including Robert White, Ellie Wiesel, and Beverly Sills. The rebroadcast of this program uh, of today will take place a week from tomorrow, Friday, April 29, at noon over KSJN AM and FM. Questions are coming forward. Uh, just to anticipate a little on that score, I have one or two, sir, that I'd like to begin by posing to you. Would you return to the platform? Yes. And we'll put you back to work, sir. Would you tell us about the demonstration in Pushkin Square? I understand that was a, a very catalytic uh, event in your, in your experience. Uh, yes, one of the first uh, demonstrations in Pushkin Square, the first one of the whole group on, of demonstrations, uh, happened on 5th of December of 1965, after the Soviet government arrested two writers who, write, who wrote their books in Russian, where they were not published in Russian, and they sent them under pseudonym uh, to be published abroad in Russian, and then they were translated into English, French, and other languages, and also printed in Russian in this country. The names of those two writers are Sinyavsky and Daniel, and they were arrested in 1965 uh, for doing exactly those things, publishing books abroad, although it is not forbidden by Soviet law. There is nothing in Soviet law which says uh, that you cannot publish books under pseudonym and abroad. Um, it just, uh, people in the Soviet Union understand that you cannot do that, that government won't like it because they know about the monopoly of government. So uh, after that, there was the first major action which beca became the beginning of movement of protest, human rights or dissident movement in the Soviet Union. There was a demonstration of several hundred people in, in Pushkin Square in uh, Moscow. There were two basic slogans of this demonstration. One of these, uh, we demand open trial of the Sinyavsky and Daniel. And another was uh, a very interesting one, uh, respect your constitution. And it became a trademark of human rights movement in the Soviet Union. Because we didn't say uh, freedom to Sinyavsky and Daniel. We said we demand open trial. Why? Because we wanted Soviet Union to fulfill their own law, because all trials according to Soviet constitution have to be open. And the second, respect your constitution, because Soviet constitution, in maybe ambiguous terms, still guarantees to all Soviet people uh, freedom to speak and all these basic freedoms. So we started not with the slogan, uh, down with communism, down with the Soviet Union, but with principles uh, against which the Soviet regime cannot be in principle. And it became a trademark of this movement. Most of the participants of this demonstration were arrested, but at that time treated lightly. Uh, at, uh, but two or three people were um, sent to mental hospital and about 40 students from Moscow University were expelled from university and got into some kind of trouble, but relatively it was mild. In reading about you in preparation today, I, I noted that uh, there was quite an impact on, on your thought and action by virtue of dealing with Russian literature, poetry, history, philosophy, that somehow you came to terms with that and it had an effect on your action. Would you care to comment at all? Yes, it's, it's very difficult to, uh, to answer in very several words, but one of the most important things, the Soviet government, when, they, uh, uh, when uh, the, the Soviet Union, a uh, uh, Soviet school raised me and many of my friends, they tried to incorporate us into the Soviet system by Soviet, uh, by Soviet propaganda. We didn't know any other uh, philosophy except their version of Marxism-Leninism, which we had to uh, take uncritically. Uh, we had to consider that all life before revolution of 1917 in Russia was very bad, and after that it, it became very, very good, and so on, and so on. But one thing they didn't eliminate completely, but tried to spoil for us, it was the classic Russian literature of 19th century. Pushkin, Gogol, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov, all these people were studied. They tried to make uh, them people who protested against Tsarism and dreamed about future communism, but it didn't uh, necessarily follow from their writings, and definitely did not uh, follow. So uh, we learned from, that, from those books, those of us who like to, uh, to read, that there is some good thing in compassion to a person against mighty state. 
to a compassion against the small state which is uh, collapsing under pressure of its uh, large neighbor. We learn about those basic Christian values, although those, uh, most of those writers were not necessarily uh, call themselves Christians, but it was a deep Russian Christian tradition, tradition of compassion, of, uh, of sympathy. And the Soviet government tried to impose on us quite different morality. They tried to tell us uh, that not you shan't kill, you shan't steal, uh, and so on. No, they, say, they try to say it, you have to kill, steal, or do whatever it is, if it's in the interest of Soviet government and in the interest of Stalin, of Soviet state, you name it, uh, you can say Führer or, or, uh, or the best uh, nation, the best race, you, you just name it, it was all the same. The new morality in which you can do all these bad things if they are in the interest of some higher ideals. So uh, from Russian literature we got another message. And I would say that uh, collision of those two messages made me uh, uh, doubt uh, in validity of at least one of them. And that was very important. Thank you. A March Gallup poll actually reported in the paper this morning says that 70% um, of Americans vote in favor of an agreement between the U.S. and Soviet Union for an immediate verifiable freeze on testing and production and deployment of nuclear weapons. Is there among the Russian people, goes the question from the audience, a support for the freeze? Are they uh, aware of that and part of it in any, in any sense? Well, uh, Soviet government, uh, so, uh, of course, tells Soviet people uh, whatever they po they sub uh, policy the Soviet government wants, and uh, officially Soviet people support it. But basically, Soviet people know too well that nothing depends on them, so, so they don't listen, they don't care. Of course, they care about war. They do, nobody is for, for war, everybody is for peace. So uh, naturally, the Soviet uh, people, nobody wants... Uh, no, none of them wants to die in Soviet propaganda sense that America always says to them that America, Americans wants to get us and we are here, we have to be strong, but in the same time we are peaceful, so we try to accommodate and please support us. And in general, it looks like they are supporting. Basically, they just know that it's better not to get involved because nothing depends on them. But very important. Last year appeared a group in Moscow which said that we are a group for better understanding between Soviet and American people. It was a new decent group, although they didn't call themselves decent, and they even tried to underline that they are interested by one issue of peace. And they addressed to those groups which organized that big rally in, in Central Park in New York last year and tried to, to, to get in touch with them and try to say that we support Soviet government, we support the freeze, and so on. And what happened with those people, I will tell you, uh, they had one press conference after which their leader, Sergei Batovrin, was arrested and, and sent to mental hospital, uh, where he spent, fortunately, only five months, and different from many other people, he was not treated by special drugs, which has a purpose to make a person a vegetable, uh, like it happened with many other people, but still, uh, several leaders of this group now are in prison, others cannot meet under constant surveillance, they are beaten when they go out, and so on, and all their messages was we support the principle and spirit of freeze and uh, we are for nuclear disarmament. And uh, in each statement they continue to say that they support the Soviet policy, but uh, it just shows that the Soviet Union doesn't care what will be um, real content of the message if that message is not theirs. If you do it independently, you are already suspect, you are already enemy. You cannot even uh, support Soviet government on your own. You just have to be obedient and say those words in support in the right time, be a real yes man. And it just shows that, uh, of course, Soviet people would like to know more about that, but they just know that it's, it doesn't pay. So any group which appears is not uh, really able to, to give real contribution to discussion about mm -hmm. peace and disarmament. There is definitely, but uh, po dissent in all countries of so-called people's democracy, Soviet satellite countries, uh, dissent in each of them really encourages others. Uh, so I cannot say about direct impact, but I know that many Soviet dissidents, when the Polish labor movement, this it's not labor movement, it's really people's movement. When 10 millions of 40 million country population, uh, the whole population of Poland is about 40 million, 10 million become members of, of so-called trade unions, Solidarność, 
solidarity. It means it's a whole country got united in some movement whose purposes are not just labor, not just trade and, and those things. Of course, uh, all Soviet dissidents were for it and hoped that it will work. You know that it didn't work, or at least, uh, but it made a deep dent into, the, uh, into that uh, totalitarian system. Uh, I cannot say about impact, but definitely there was hope when we demonstrated, uh, I personally with my friends demonstrated for uh, against Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, we demonstrated not only because we uh, hated the idea that our big country oppresses freedom in small country, but be, uh, also because we hope that Czechoslovakian spring, so-called Czechoslovakian reforms, attempts to build communism with human faith, whatever you can, of course, uh, uh, laugh at this statement, but uh, it still uh, was our hope that maybe in that way we'll have evolution of the Soviet society. Uh, so when we went to demonstration, we were against oppression of these attempts of evolution. So definitely we welcome this development. Since Soviet citizens have no experience with democracy, is it possible for them to have aspirations for freedom and civil rights? Uh, it's an important and difficult question, but I will tell you I have a deep conviction that any people, when, uh, if, of course, when they had experience, when they, uh, they know things from books, when they know it from their own experience, they uh, definitely it's much easier for them to build, uh, to build democracy starting from small uh, centers and going up to creating, uh, to, to creating a central government. Of course, such thing doesn't exist in the Soviet Union because there is no democracy in any level and unfortunately almost never was. But there was democratic development in Tsarist Russia from uh, years 1860 and until Bolsheviks stopped this development completely, there was a democratic development, appeared the Russian parliament, appeared the court with jurors and many other things. Uh, which were completely abruptly stopped. And I don't believe that Russians are different. They cannot have things which uh, Swedes or Japan Japanese uh, take for granted. It's much more difficult. And people uh, are very skeptical about democracy. But basically, people believe, and I believe all people in Africa or in the Soviet Union, in Chile or in America, they have the same belief that they can take care about themselves. Uh, themselves. And I think it's the basis of of any democracy, but it's difficult when there is no experience, it's true. Is there religious freedom in the Soviet Union? Uh, any freedom to discuss any ideas, to believe in anything, what is not today officially approved. I hate to use the word communism because the word communism doesn't have exactly much content. It confuses too, ma too many people. Basically, what is important about the Soviet Union is that they have one religion. It's a there today communist content. And this religion is protected by the all power of the Soviet state. So any group which tries to find and follow ideas which are different, uh, of course, automatically are in very bad shape. And among those groups, uh, of course, all religion groups, uh, be it Jews or uh, be it uh, Russian Orthodox Christian, Baptist, Pentecostalist, Seventh-day Adventists, there are all these sects, all these groups exist from small Protestant sects to bigger one like Baptist to uh, the millions of, of uh, Russian Orthodox or Catholics in Lithuania or in Ukraine. All these groups uh, are in very bad shape. Their leaders are arrested, uh, believers are harassed, churches are get closed, but in the same time there is tremendous, uh, uh, tremendous striving for religion because when communist ideology uh, as belief of young generations collapsed in the Soviet Union, maybe in the 50s and the 60s, people started to look for something new. So the interest toward religion is, is tremendous in the Soviet Union and that makes the Soviet persecution of any churches, any religion especially harsh. Some Baptists and Pentecostalists are, uh, their children are taken from them because they are not raised according to so-called um, code, uh, moral code of, uh, uh, of communism and their children are taken to state orphanages. There are some very poignant and awful stories uh, uh, about that and there is plenty of information uh, about that. But to say that, that religion is very harshly uh, persecuted, yes. Would you comment on the Jewish problem in Russia? 
Well, uh, it's again, there are many related uh, issues, one of them which I already mentioned, and in that way, Jewish religion, of course, is very persecuted. But for most of the Soviet Jews, it's not problem of freedom of religion, it's a problem of discrimination uh, against Jews, it's a problem that a Jewish uh, boy or girl uh, have tremendous difficulty to enter into higher education, it's a problem of a, uh, of a anti-Semitism on, uh, on a, uh, people's contacts level, which is encouraged by the state. It's a problem of tremendous so-called anti-Zionist propaganda in the Soviet government, which is, of course, uh, is uh, just synonym in the Soviet Union for anti-Semitic, which they were very successful to get even through, uh, through authority of United Nations. Uh, so they, uh, the Jews in the Soviet Union are um, basically don't have Jewish life. And many of them maybe even would be satisfied with that because uh, some of them in two, three generations don't know about that. But they cannot be, um, uh, cannot reconciliate with the idea that they cannot get a job because their mother in some form which they will fulfill uh, was a Jew, even if father was not a Jew. They, uh, this all things they cannot reconciliate and the situation becomes worse. Together with that appeared the question, which in minds of many of you probably related to the Jewish question, but which is not directly related. It's a problem of immigration from the Soviet Union. Soviet Union considers itself a paradise. It's a country which fulfilled all dreams of people, and by definition, nobody can want, can conceive the idea of immigrating from paradise. It's a contradiction in terms. So, uh, the whole idea of immigration is, uh, is absolutely repulsive for an official Soviet mind. And of course, uh, part of that problem is the Jewish immigration. But in the same time, there is a very interesting thing, that when Jews in the Soviet Union, with support of Jews and public opinion in the world, increase their pressure for permitting them to leave the Soviet Union to go to Israel or uh, to the United States, at that time, um, uh, Soviets suddenly decide that maybe it's a good idea to let some of them go and maybe to kick out some Jewish or not Jewish dissidents go and then say that the whole immigration problem from the Soviet Union is a problem of Soviet Jews and then play anti-Semitic card. You know that Jews are such and such. Of course, they want to go to, uh, to other countries because they don't like our Soviet motherland and so on and so on. So in a way, in a paradox, uh, that uh, Jews are in better position than the Soviet Union. During the last uh, 15 years, about uh, 200,000 of people from the Soviet Union, most of them are Jews, not all of them, were permitted to emigrate. But at the same time, a lot of Jews who applied for exit visa were refused. Uh, a lot of uh, children were beaten because their uh, parents um, uh, were um, uh, applying to immigration. A lot of Jewish activists were sent to, uh, to labor camps. And, uh, and today, most of the immigration practically stopped, although some exceptions are made. Um, so it's a kind of ambiguous thing that Jews at least have official line to apply because they can apply uh, for immigration, but not as immigration, but uh, unification with their relatives in Israel. And it creates a special situation. The same story to some degree is with so-called Soviet German, which can sometimes go to uh, West Germany, but most of them uh, who apply end up in Soviet prisons. Two questions that are related, it says, or asks, tell us about your experience in Siberia, and then are the stories of slave labor camps sensationalist, or are the uh, numbers of people in these work camps increasing, that whole phenomenon? Your experience in Siberia. Yeah. My experience was uh, was uh, in a way uh, not typical because of my uh, partly because of my family name, partly because uh, I started. Uh, I was one of the first who started human rights activity and became because of that rather famous in the West. And the Soviet Union is very uh, much attentive to West uh, uh, public opinion, American or uh, or European. Uh, but especially American, they treated me uh, milder. I was sent in, uh, into Siberian exile, and it was not labor camp. I didn't live behind, bar, uh, behind barbed wire, and my family could join me. I had to uh, live in a place about uh, 4,000 miles northeast from Moscow in a rather uh, hard conditions, but my wife and my son 
uh, were permitted to join me, and my daughter even was born there, and there were plenty of people who lived there on their own, and uh, even would like to, uh, to go to Moscow. So uh, it was quite different, uh, different story. The life was difficult, uh, my health uh, suffered, and I was always under a threat of new arrests there, like it happens today with, with a lot of people uh, who are in exile, they're sent to labor camps, uh, after uh, their term in exile ends. But other than that, my life, I had to work as electrician in mines. It was all difficult, but fortunately, I was strong enough uh, and uh, physically, and I could survive, and I could do things with my own hands. It, it kind of was not a very difficult life. And in fact, in retrospective, it's, uh, it's very pleasant to remember that when you are in safety, of course. Um, uh, uh, it's quite different when you, like most of my friends, uh, were and are. Today there are thousands of political uh, labor, uh, labor camp uh, prisoners. Uh, political, I m mentioned only. At least 4,000 names are known. We collect, I myself involved and was involved in Russia in collecting information because officially they don't publish, officially those names uh, are not known. Um, uh, uh, of all political labor camps. There are probably, we consider that with each um, person in political labor camps, there is at least three whom we don't know. So probably 4,000 we know, there is 16,000 altogether, maybe more, because a lot of, for example, religious believers and activists are sent not into political labor camps, but together with uh, regular convicts, and we don't know their names. A lot of people are framed for, uh, for speaking up their minds. A lot of people sent to remote um, mental hospitals together with, re with regular um, uh, uh, mentally ill criminals, and we don't know uh, uh, about most of them. So there are probably tens of thousands of those people, although we cannot give exact number. But we definitely, I have with me a book, in fact, I have it in my uh, code, with uh, pictures of 800 people. Uh, those people, we even have pictures and names and, and the story shortly what happened with them. We published this book in English and in Russian here in this country, uh, all what we were able to compile about that. Uh, so uh, the life in political labor camps, they live behind barbed wire, uh, they, uh, they don't have enough food, this food is very often rotten and not very nutrient, they are um, cut from their relatives, in most cases their relatives uh, cannot see them for years, sometimes they could see them for an hour, uh, once a year, sometimes they cannot. Uh, their uh, correspondence uh, is, is very limited, uh, there is official at that time uh, censorship of anything what they can write. Uh, from labor camps, and of course they are uh, under very uh, tremendous pressure from labor camp administration to say that they recanted, they repented from all these their so-called anti-Soviet counter-revolutionary convictions, and uh, then they had a chance to be released. Some people do it, but most of my friends don't do it, and some of them die, like my friend Yuri Glanskov in the age of 33 died in political labor camp from Alzheimer's. He was just not operated on time. It was deliberate murder, of course, Nobody can prove that, uh, but he didn't get medical help, and 33 years old man died from cancer. It's just one example of many. Uh, so uh, the situation, uh, what is sensationalist uh, when people say that there are 10 millions and there is, uh, of uh, tens of millions of political labor uh, camp prisoners. It is not true. Uh, when they say that there is nothing changed after Stalin, uh, when there was really millions, uh, it is not true. There was a lot of change uh, happened, but situation is bad enough, and they arrest, as I already mentioned, and put in prison as many people as needed to keep society uh, under their control. That's a basic idea, but uh, uh, that's what it is without trying to sens sensationalize. Thank you. Just before posing one added question, let me remind the radio audience that they have been listening to the Westminster Thursday noon town hall forum emanating from Westminster Church in downtown Minneapolis, and that you have been listening to Pavel Litvinov, who is a Russian by birth, a physicist by training, an exile from the Soviet Union, uh, but, but very dedicated to the pursuit of, of social justice in his, in his homeland. We are very indebted to him for coming and sharing in the manner which he has. Uh, let me ask you one added question that has come from the audience. 
How can the USA most effectively help Soviet citizens achieve more freedom and a better life without provoking a war? It's a, it's a good question. <laughs> I, uh, I, I wish I knew the answer. One thing is for sure, there could be two questions. First of all, uh, uh, there is one misconception. Some people think that the Soviet Union are necessarily trying to get uh, as many weapons as possible, so in eventually attack United States. It's not their purpose, but their purpose to be strong enough, to be stronger than the United States, so they, they could impose their type of regime without war, uh, chipping one country at a time to the Afghanistan uh, in, uh, in, in many places in the world. They are not in a hurry, but they are trying to do it each time. And when Americans are involved with something, when Americans are not sure in themselves, when Americans are in soul searching and, and not sure that they have to be strong, but at the same time uh, willing to negotiate, then Soviets are, um, uh, Soviets are most active and they could, um, uh, could, could do all those things. So one thing is for sure that Americans have to be strong, then the Soviets will be much more cautious in their aggression. And this, the Americans have to stand up for their principles and, and their freedoms, and Americans mostly have to believe that they have something beyond uh, their uh, vast uh, wealth, beyond their houses and cars and their way of life. They have this great thing, freedom, uh, which they sometimes take for granted and don't think about that and don't trust it. There are many people in the Soviet Union who might be naively, but they believe that America is the leader of the free world. Uh, and believe that Americans are ready to take a stand for freedom. Readiness to take a stand can prevent uh, war. Uh, I am sure because Soviets are not stupid. They are not crazy, they are not stupid, they are not ready to risk a war, and Americans could be strong. That's one thing. Another thing, you have to remember about those people who are there. You have to support organizations who support human rights, uh, not only in the Soviet Union, but throughout the world, groups like Amnesty International. You have to learn what's going on uh, in the Soviet Union, uh, what's going on in other countries, and who are those people who suffer. You have to remember at least one name about the Soviet Union, the great Soviet physicist, Dr. Andrei Sakharov, who is banished uh, in exile in Gorky and in poor shape and tremendous pressure, and he was one of the first in the world spokesman who made influence, a spokesman for world disarmament. And remember his name, demand that Soviets will release him, maybe let him go to Moscow, maybe uh, let him emigrate. I think he will do for the world and for, uh, for freedom more uh, if, if you will get Sakharov out. Please at least remember his name. Thank you.